In the 1700s, several European kings found themselves having a bit of trouble with their subjects. The King of Sweden was no exception. In this episode of Footnoting History, it's all about the dramatic life and death of Gustav III. Hey everyone, Christine here with the story of Gustav III, the art-loving king who didn't exactly die of old age. I decided on this topic after I came across a picture of Gustav while scrolling through the image database for the New York Public Library. I didn't have much background in Swedish history prior to the Napoleonic period, and so when I saw him I thought it would be a good opportunity to expand my knowledge. I found his life, and particularly his death, interesting, so obviously the next step is making it a podcast. As I mentioned in my little intro, Gustav was on the throne during a time when several European monarchs were given headaches by their subjects, and he was definitely not immune to being at odds with the Swedish people. Plus, since the title of this episode is The Murder of Sweden's Gustav III, you can pretty much tell where this is going. But before we get to his end, we need a beginning. I mean, who was Gustav III? Gustav was born in 1746 to King Adolf Frederick and Queen Lovisa Ulrika, who also happened to be the sister of Prussia's King Frederick the Great. So how about that for an uncle? What sort of Sweden was Gustav III born into? This is really important because during this time period, and indeed even a bit after Gustav III, Sweden actually encompassed primarily both modern-day Sweden and modern-day Finland. Also, Gustav's father couldn't just, you know, wave his hand and do as he pleased. In fact, for several decades, Sweden had been in a period that became called the Age of Liberty, or sometimes also the Age of Freedom. This meant that it was a time when political power was held entirely by the Riksdag, which, for those unfamiliar with the term, is basically the Swedish equivalent of parliament. The Riksdag was made up of four estates, the nobility, clergy, burghers, and peasants. And within that, as tends to be the case, political factions, called the hats and caps, formed, and they didn't particularly like each other, and they liked to fight for dominance. As much as Gustav's father was king, he basically couldn't do a whole lot because the Riksdag had all the power. Over the course of his education, Gustav developed a love of history, French, philosophy, and political theory, and he was taught to emulate the great Swedish monarchs of the past. His personality, like most controversial figures, I have read a variety of accounts. I've read that he was indolent and theatrical, but also that he was charming, and several sources point out that he was incredibly secretive. Historians have speculated over his possible homosexuality, but whether or not that was true, in 1766 he married Danish princess Sophia Magdalena, with whom he would eventually produce an heir. Fun fact, um, at one point, Gustav's mother openly questioned the paternity of her son's child. So there's that to tell you how things were going for him. He took his pending role as king very seriously, and in the late 1760s, he even drafted a possible new constitution that would increase the power of the throne and let him initiate and do things for himself. It's worth noting here that 
Gustav didn't really walk around talking about God-given rights and spiritual gifts that should make him all-powerful. His wide readings of philosophy, particularly the Enlightenment thinkers, caused him to stress that he had a responsibility to, and social contract with, his people. This demanded that he act in a way that was best for them. Gustav III's life as king began in early 1771, when he was summoned back from a visit to Paris upon the death of his father. Gustav said that he wanted to be the first citizen of a free people, and have influence over the way that those people were governed. He quickly realized, though, that the all-powerful Riksdag, as it currently existed, wasn't going to rally to his ideas. So he had to do something about that. What was our new king going to do? Well, in August of 1772, he staged a bloodless coup or revolution against his own government. He ran out the most controlling of the factions and then celebrated amongst his people before bringing in a new constitution. This one still had rules that Gustav had to obey. One being that, for example, the Riksdag had to approve any offensive war that he wanted to start but it did give Gustav much more influence than his father had. So then what do you do after such a dramatic beginning? You become king, you overthrow part of your own government. What comes next? Well, of course, there was fun and games. Gustav loved court life, and especially the spectacle that went with it. He was also incredibly, incredibly passionate about the arts, I honestly don't think that I can stress enough how passionate about them he was. And he was aware of the state of culture in the rest of Europe, and he wanted Sweden to have its own national artistic culture that was just as vibrant. He had rooms in the Stockholm Palace turned into a theater, while also building and or maintaining theaters at a few other Swedish palaces. He wrote multiple plays and librettos, and surrounded himself with renowned composers, dance masters, and performers. Among his creations are the Royal Swedish Academy of Music, made to foster the arts among the Swedish people, and the Stockholm Opera House, which opened in 1782, where he made sure, of course, that the Royal Box had the best view in the house. Meanwhile, he was also making changes to the rest of Swedish life. Sweden, a Protestant country, now allowed freedom of worship to Catholics and Jews. He also instituted penal reforms while purging the judicial system of its problems, and he made changes to the army. So then, how the heck, if things were going pretty decently, and he's improving things, did everything go so wrong that he ultimately got murdered? Here we go. In 1786, Gustav went to his Riksdag and gave them a bunch of proposals. The Riksdag had now been living for several years with decreased authority, and they were pretty grumpy about it. They also had endured some bad harvest seasons, and they were further displeased with several royal monopolies that had happened, as well as some limiting of freedom of the press. They heard Gustav's proposals, and they basically responded with a resounding nope, and they began to list their own grievances. It seemed the happy years were over, and the discontent, particularly among the nobility, was starting to show its head. This devastated Gustav, because remember, he was the sort of king who thrived on his people thinking that he was the best thing ever, with all of their interests as his priority. 
It didn't get better when, a few years later, Gustav launched a war with Russia without the approval of his Riksdag, which, you may remember, I said earlier was a part of the very constitution that he had instated. This didn't help things at all, and the next thing Gustav knew, his military officers refused to fight for him in his illegal war. Oops, that's not great. But, aha! The Danish unknowingly gave Gustav a brief reprieve from his people's anger. How'd they do that? Well, in response to Gustav having declared war on their ally, Russia, they declared war on Sweden. Sounds right. This changed things because it put Sweden on the defensive, which Gustav used to his advantage to get support for keeping the Danes out. But let's face it, that didn't really matter in the long term because it was already blatantly clear that the nobility was not afraid to stand up to Gustav if they felt he overstepped his boundaries. The point of no return came in 1789. Gustav, aware that the nobles still weren't too thrilled with him, sought to control the situation. He did this by cozying up to those three other estates that I mentioned before, the clergy, burghers, and peasants, and he got their support for, dun-dun-dun, the Act of Union and Security. I know, it's not really an exciting title for me to dun-dun-dun in front of, but just stay with me. What this did was basically crazy in the eyes of the nobility. Not only did it increase the ability of the non-noble classes to have social mobility, but it also basically destroyed all of the privileges of being a member of the nobility anyway. While across the Atlantic, the Americans were fresh from cutting their ties with Britain, and the French Revolution is, you know, getting underway practically next door, the Swedish king was asserting his power by limiting that of the nobles who gave him difficulty. It was crazy times of political upheaval all over. Even Gustav is believed to have called the late 18th century a time of revolutions. But, you know, he definitely hoped, I'm sure, that things like this wouldn't actually cause his own death. Gustav managed to end the war with Russia without any sort of real catastrophic losses. But that didn't make the nobles feel better. And pamphlets circulated saying that Gustav was not living up to his obligations as a king. Perhaps not unpredictably, conspiracies formed to push for a change of regime with maybe a new constitution, but this is what happened instead. The big moment arrived. It's March of 1792. The majority of vocal noble discontent has gone underground. At the Stockholm Opera House, a masked ball was being held. Of course, Gustav was in attendance. But so was Captain Ankerstrom. Ankerstrom was a nobleman who was angry and passionate about what he perceived to be Gustav's tyrannical despotism, which must be stopped. Despite the masked nature of the ball, he located Gustav and shot him in the back. Chaos, understandably, ensued. Ankerstrom had loaded his pistol with two balls as well as various other pieces of metal ranging from nails to scraps. Much of this became embedded in Gustav's person, and Gustav, unfortunately for him, given how much it hurt, did not die immediately. A medical team did its best to remove as many pieces as they could, but historian A.D. Harvey states that the wound caused by the assassin's shot was so big a surgeon could fit his hand in it up to the wrist. That's kind of disgusting. 
The assassination attempt sent a shock through Sweden, and many nobles went into hiding at a fear of retribution against them by the populace. Ankerstrom was apprehended, and several of his associates were arrested too, but there was nothing to be done to save the king. Gustav lingered in what I can only describe as an immense, horrible amount of pain for nearly two weeks. And so it was that Gustav III passed away from his wounds while still in the prime of his life on the 29th of March, 1792. For those who are keeping track, that's a little less than a year before Louis XVI would be executed in France. It was a surprising yet dramatic ending for the King of Sweden. The crown passed to his teenage son, who did not share Gustav's love of the arts, Gustav's assassin was executed for his crime, and time spun forward. But I do have a little epilogue for you, lest you think that was the end of Gustav III's story. Sweden's theater king, who, as we know, adored all things performance-based, was still in the minds of the music world years later. Long before August Strindberg wrote a play about him, in 1833 an opera called Gustav III or the Masked Ball premiered. It was the work of librettist Eugene Scrieb and composer Daniel Aubert. Some 20 years after that, another opera with an equally creative title, A Masked Ball, appeared. This one was by none other than Verdi, with a libretto actually based upon the earlier Scrieb text. Now, both of those works were rather creative in their use of historical truth. One modern historian went so far as to say that Basically, the only thing they have in common with the real Gustav III's life is that, spoiler alert, he gets assassinated at the end. Still, it was only appropriate that someone like Gustav, who loved the arts as much as he did, should end up the subject of several pieces. He probably would have preferred not to have been shot and killed in order for it to happen, but nevertheless, it seems a fitting coda for his life. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>